Well, let's take our Bible this morning as they exit the stage and be finding Acts chapter 15. We are in a study of the book of Acts, the fifth such series in our longer treatment of this important book of the Bible. And this morning, we'll continue our study in the latter verses of the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. So we could go Thursday, speaking of missions, the mission field, we were wrapping up our mission to the greater Seville, Spain area. It was our last night. And I did something that I've always been intrigued to do, but have never done before. You know what I did? I went to a bullfight. That's what I did. I've never been to a bullfight before. I've read Hemingway for years. And he, of course, lived in Spain for a long time, wrote much of his fascination with bullfighting. And uh, so we had the opportunity to go. The thing didn't start until 10 o'clock at night as most things don't get cranked up over there until late at night and everybody stays up all night. So I went to the bullfight. Now, I didn't know much about bullfights except very little bit, just the basics. But I tell you what I did know. Somebody was going to get hurt and somebody was going to die. I didn't know who it was, but somebody was going to get hurt and somebody was going to die. It was either going to be the bull or the matador or it was going to be both of them. But something was going to happen. Those Spanish fighting bulls are bred to come into that arena totally ticked off at the world. They've got horns that are longer and more pronounced than most bulls. They come in weighing about 1,500 pounds. The matador could be as young as 14 or 15 years old. These are just little kids, most of them. And they might weigh 150 pounds soaking wet. So they're facing off against an animal 10 times on average as large as they are. And it's, of course, brute force against intelligence and skill. And the conflict is real. And it doesn't go away until there's a casualty of some kind. Now, we're going to talk this morning about the subject of conflict for a few minutes and One thing I've learned about life is that even though conflict is inevitable in human relationships, tragedy does not have to be. Good things can come from tense situations, and that's the focus of our message this morning as we look at the subject, the extreme effects of living together. Two weeks ago, Brian Nall was here from Acts 14 speaking on the extreme effects of living together. Sent last week, Dustin preached a great message from the first part of Acts 15 on the extreme effects of living focused. Today, we continue that theme with the extreme effects of living together. And as we come to the 15th chapter of Acts, we are confronted with two very important heavyweights of the faith. They are squaring off, as it were, in a battle of the wills. This is a very familiar story about how pervasive the subject of conflict and relational conflict can be, even among friends, even among marriage partners, even among parents and children, even among fellow workers in the gospel ministry. Acts 15 and verse 36 is where we'll begin. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia 
and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of our Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, this, of course, marks the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. We have concluded our study of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, and a portion of it, of course, John Mark was with them. And that was a relatively simple and brief journey, moving from Antioch in Syria to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas was from, across the island of Cyprus, up into the region of South Galatia, where they visited four principal cities, uh, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. There they planted churches, and then they backtracked through those cities and set sail back for Antioch. This marks the beginning of the second missionary journey. This is going to be a much longer journey. It's going to cover twice the territory, and it's going to take twice the length for Paul and his companions to make it. This is the favorite of mine of the three missionary journeys. It's exciting, and they visit some wonderful places. This is where the gospel fundamentally goes into Europe for the very first time, particularly the region of Macedonia and Greece, cities like Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, uh, uh, of course, and then on to Ephesus before they come back to the land of Palestine. Paul, of course, has a pastor's heart, and what he wants to do, his initial idea is to go back and start in South Galatia, where they had already been twice, going and coming. But they had established churches there. Paul, of course, is a missionary and a church planter, but he has a pastor's heart, and he knows that there are disciples there, and he wants to make sure that they're growing, and he knows the importance of leadership and effective leadership, and so he wants to make sure that elders have been appointed, and elders and leadership such as pastors, are there and properly providing the right kind of steady growth and encouragement for the flock. And so from there, of course, he's going to leave, move over into Europe. We'll delve more into the particulars of Paul's European tour next Sunday. But for today, the thing that we need to know is that uh, about this second missionary journey is that Barnabas ain't going. Paul's going to make the journey without his very close companion. And no sooner have they started dreaming about this next phase of missionary thrust and outreach, they have this pointed disagreement over one single detail that they simply could not meet in the middle about. They could not resolve it. It's in verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, not gone with them to the work, to the major part of the work in South Galatia. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. That phrase, sharp disagreement, is an important word in the Greek New Testament. Paroxysmos, we get our English word paroxysm from it. You know what a paroxysm is? I, my mama called it a fit. Having a paroxysm, pitching a fit. Somebody say amen, it's apparent here this morning. That's getting down in the floor and kicking legs and screaming at the top of your lungs. Make no mistake, 
This was a shouting match between Barnabas and Paul. And, of course, the word itself, you read other parts, this is the same word that's applied to God himself in terms of his wrath. Last time I checked, God gets worked up over sin, doesn't he? God has a paroxysm about sin. God sent his only son. The death of Christ was required as a payment for sin. So this is a big deal, sharp disagreement. May we say the honeymoon is over between Paul and Barnabas. And in this case, the conflict centers around a person, a very young man, just getting his missionary legs, John Mark. So with all of that in mind, that kind of sets the stage um, for me to make a couple of observations about conflict in Christian relationships. It may be helpful to some people this morning. Once I make these two helpful comments, I'm going to offer some practical suggestions as we land the plane this morning in terms of how to deal with conflict effectively whenever, not if, but when, it raises its ugly head. The first observation I would make is simply this. Conflict is inevitable in a world that's broken by sin. If you're alive and breathing, you're going to engage in some kind of conflict at some point along the way. You can't live together without sometimes getting out of sorts with your husband or your wife, without getting out of sorts sometimes with your kids. You can't live in church together without having disagreements oftentimes with one another. Sometimes they're disagreements about big things. Sometimes, most of the time even, they're disagreements over petty things that don't amount to a hill of beans in the specter of eternity. But the world is broken by sin, and in a world that's broken by sin, with fallible human beings, every single one of us, we're going to engage from time to time in, conf in conflict among the relationships of our life. I've told you all before that Genesis 3 is the hinge chapter of the Bible. Why is Genesis 3 the hinge chapter of the Bible? Because that's the chapter where sin enters the world for the very first time. And when sin enters the world, it destroyed the perfect harmony that man had enjoyed with God and that that first husband had enjoyed with his wife. Before sin, perfect unity, perfect peace, perfect harmony. Man walked with God, fellowshipping with God in the coolness of the day. Adam got along with Eve. They never had a row, never had a harsh word for one another. After sin, life becomes a perpetual soap opera. All you have to do is read the rest of the book of Genesis. Adam couldn't get along with Eve. Cain couldn't get along with Abel. Abraham couldn't get along with Lot. Esau couldn't get along with Jacob. Joseph couldn't get along with his brothers. My stars, that's just the first book of the Bible. There's 65 other books in the Bible, and every single one of them have stories just like that where heads butt and people disagree. Sometimes things get heated. So God created us to live in unity and union and harmony with one another and in union and harmony with him, but sin has broken those relationships, and the inevitable result is conflict. There in the book of Genesis, man, it all starts. Man has conflict with his relationships. Man has conflict with the soil. Man has conflict with the weather. Man has conflict with his body. Man has conflict with others, and that's still true today. We still have relational conflict even among the people of God, even among those who have some degree of significance in terms of their calling 
in their ministry and missionary service to the Lord. Barnabas and Paul separate over the issue of John Mark and whether or not that John Mark should accompany them once again on this second missionary journey. Now that issue, of course, stems from the instance that took place back in Acts chapter 13, an issue that we've already looked at, where we're told there in Acts 13, 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John what? Left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, I've already spoken with you about some of the potential reasons, and I'm not going to backtrack over those. It could have been that Paul was sick himself and that John Mark couldn't handle Paul potentially dying. It could have been that Mark was sick and couldn't get well. The most likely scenario, of course, is that Mark was just young. He was young. He was untested. He'd probably never been that far away from home before. He wasn't ready for the test of that kind of journey, wasn't ready for the hostility associated with that kind of journey, wasn't ready physically, probably wasn't ready spiritually either. But whatever the reason for his quick exodus, Barnabas, who was an encourager by nature, and Barnabas, who was related to John Mark by birth, the two were cousins, was ready to give Mark another chance. But Paul wouldn't have any of it. Paul, I mean, Barnabas has the gift of encouragement. Barnabas has the gift of mercy. Paul has the gift of prophecy and the gift of leadership. And so where Barnabas is ready to put an arm over the shoulder, give somebody a quick hug, encourage them with positive words, Paul's just much more practical, much more plain spoken. And he immediately, I mean, Paul was easily provoked. Paul was easily angered. It was just part of his innate constitution. And he immediately said, nope, that's not going to happen. Probably because he felt like there was too much at stake. He had, he had, life and death was on the line. He knew things were going to get harsher the farther west and away from the land of the church and the land of the Lord Jesus Christ that they went. And so he knew he just didn't have time for coddling. He didn't have time for hand-holding. Would not consider the idea at all. And it may well have been, to some degree, added to that that Paul was still a little bit upset with Barnabas over that whole circumcision issue that we just studied last week, the first part of Acts 15. Because there was heresy in the land that was diluting the gospel of grace, right? This, this Judaizing party, sometimes called the circumcision party, had a very strong voice. They were the hard right on the religious scene there in the region of Palestine and southern Syria. And they were fine, these Jews were, with Gentiles becoming followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they insisted in order for a Gentile to follow Jesus, he had to first become a Jew. And all of the males had to first submit to circumcision. So you get circumcised, and then you can properly follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, to which every adult Gentile male went, because that was a painful requirement. And it was an unnecessary requirement. Paul went off the rails when he came back from that missionary journey and found out that this was becoming a pervasive uh, kind of teaching 
And here's what's interesting. When the, that whole issue was at its peak, now that issue's been put to bed by the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas have left Jerusalem. They went back up to Antioch. They carried a letter with them from James saying we're not going to require circumcision. That's adding to the gospel of grace. But when that issue was at fever pitch, even church leadership got caught up with it to the point where Jewish leaders would not sit at the same dinner table with Gentiles who were uncircumcised. And among those was Peter. Paul will write his letter to the Galatians and said, when I found out Peter had gotten caught up in that mess, wouldn't even sit at a table with an uncircumcised Gentile, that same Peter to whom God had spoke, giving a vision of a great sheet with all kinds of unclean food, saying, just stop it and eat what I say is clean. That same Peter who went into the house of Cornelius the Gentile, preached the gospel, saw that man get saved and his entire household get saved, even Peter started to backtrack and wouldn't even sit at the table. And Paul says, when I found out about that, I got in his face. That's what he said. The idea is getting nose to nose with him. But notice what Paul also says there in Galatians 2 and verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I love the insertion of the word even there because what that says is that Paul cannot believe what he's been told. Not Barnabas, even Barnabas. Now, we can almost understand it with Barnabas because Barnabas was a peacemaker. And so he thought, listen, this, this is going to get ugly, so don't worry about it. I'll just sit over here with you Jews. Just relax. Let's just everybody take a deep. You can, you can see Barnabas doing that because that was his nature, and those were his gifts. But Paul didn't take it that way. That came across apparently not only as a shock to Paul but as an offense to Paul who saw it as an attack on the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ and a nod back toward law. So Paul was already dealing with a little bit of anger and a little bit of hostility and a little bit of disappointment with Barnabas over that issue. Now all of a sudden, all he has to do is open his mouth and say, John Mark, let's take him along, and the whole thing just blows up. And it's ironic to me, particularly from the Apostle Paul, because this is a man, remember, when he writes his Corinthian correspondence, he's going to later confess to the Corinthians that God has given unto me the ministry of reconciliation. Really? Apparently, he'd yet to figure that out completely here. And that letter, of course, would come much later. This episode is a reminder that you can be saved by the grace of God, studying the Bible, in church every time the doors are open, but you're not a perfect human being. You can still get in the flesh, isn't that right? Your emotions can still get the better of you, you can still react in ways that are displeasing to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder too that these two heavyweights of the faith, they're not perfect human beings, they're men. They are not angels. I've known many people who have quit their jobs feeling like God has called them into ministry. They've got to get out. I've got to get out of this job. I've got to get away from this cursing. I've got to get away from the political wrangling. I've just got to get away from all this. I think I'll go into the ministry because everything's perfect in the ministry. 
Everything's perfect on a church staff, man. That's heaven on earth, 24-7, 365. Let me tell you, you don't know what you're talking about. Man, I'm going to go into ministry. You don't have to work two days a week when you're a pastor of a church. Amen. You don't know what you're talking about. You have no clue, no idea. There is no utopia this side of heaven. This is a world. It's fallen. It's broken. And that's why you better make sure you're abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ because you're going to have relational challenges in the family of God. So the most important thing that you can do, I can do, is to make sure, because it's not that hard to tell who's abiding in Jesus and who's not. You can tell by reactions most of the time. Who's had their quiet time that morning? Who's been in the Word? Who's praying? And who's not opened the Bible for a while? Who's not talked to the Lord or heard from the Lord in a while? Make sure you're abiding in Christ. Stay daily connected to Him because honoring Christ with your life means looking like Christ when you handle conflict whenever it raises its ugly head. So that's the first thing. It's inevitable. Make sure you're abiding in Christ to deal with it properly. More about that here in a minute. A second thing we learn, though, from this narrative is that God works even in the worst situations to bring out a positive outcome. God can work even through the worst situations to bring about good. It seems like there's something in the Bible about that. Oh, yeah, Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for what? for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. God can take even sinful things, even bad things, and reshape them so that something positive can arise even out of a painful situation. Take a look at verse 39. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. What's a little disappointing here? Because everybody in the house loves Barnabas. Nobody dislikes Barnabas except Paul right here. And this is the last we hear from him in the biblical narratives. We never hear Barnabas again. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, is going to hitch his wagon to Paul's. And he's going to go along for the ride. And so Luke's reporting is going to be fundamentally reporting about what Paul is doing. But this is still a positive outcome. Because even though there's sharp disagreement, see, what's the good here? The two weren't going to resolve it. They weren't going to get together. or They weren't going to come to an agreement. But God still works all things together for good. How? By creating two mission teams out of one. So the good part about this is now we have a doubling of the gospel thrust outward. Whereas we would have just had a single team, now we have two teams going in different directions and thus doubling the impact, maximizing the opportunity. And good things can happen, and we all know that. It doesn't justify the bad, because most of that bad stuff could be avoided. Most of that bad stuff could be resolved. It's not always resolvable. But most of the time, it's, it, it can be. Church splits, for example, are never a good thing. But there has been good things that have come from churches who could not resolve their differences. There has been a doubling. When I went to my church, my first church I pastored in Forsyth, Missouri, most of the young people had already left. They had a bad situation. I had to come in with a fire hose. 
I almost didn't take the church because of that. And most of the young people had left. They started another church just right down the road. So this was kind of what I had walked into. To make a long story short, though, it all worked out remarkably great. Because over time, both churches began to grow. That new church had a very modern approach. I pastored a First Baptist church that was much more traditional. We were never going to appeal to the same type of people. So that church, with more modern approaches to ministry, started reaching people that would have never walked through the door of our church, generally speaking. We made some subtle shifts in our ministry, and we started to grow. Before it was over, when I came here, both of those churches were running in excess of 700 people each, each, which probably would have never happened in that type of quantity, apart from that situation bubbling up like it did. It wasn't good. It didn't have to happen. It could have been avoided. But God still took a less than ideal situation and brought something good out of it. Many people often ask, who was right in this deal? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? Well, you know what? If you look at the situation from both sides, you're going to see that they both make good arguments. But I think that if you were to ask John Mark who was right, what do you think he would say? He'd say, I think Barnabas was right because Barnabas didn't give up on me. And there's just no question that as far as the outcome is concerned, Mark going to Cyprus with Barnabas was without a doubt the best possible outcome, in my opinion, for that young man. Because I'm telling you, Paul was just a hard ankle to work for, man. Have y'all ever worked for hard ankles before, as my wife calls them? I mean, some people just aren't pleasant in their demeanor. And some people are just hard. And that's Paul. Paul was a zealot. And the thing about Paul is once a zealot, always a zealot. Paul never lived in the middle. He was always on the extreme. He was that way as a Jew And he was that way when he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's just difficult for guys with a certain bent and with a certain personality set to thrive under that kind of leadership. Listen, can I say it this morning? Not every young man can play football for Nick Saban. Although some will thrive. Not every young man can play basketball for Bobby Knight, Scotty. They can't do it. I'm not sure I'd want my child playing basketball for that crazy guy. But he had several national championships, so he could bring it out of a certain type. Now, some people need John Wooden. And some people need Bobby Bowden. And some people need a Dabo Sweeney. Y'all know what I'm saying this morning? And Mark needed Barnabas. I just don't think there's any question about that. And so it worked out wonderfully well. And one thing we know is that John Mark did grow up and he did mature and he did begin to thrive in that missionary journey with Barnabas. They went to Cyprus where Barnabas was from and Mark ended up writing a book of the Bible for crying out loud called the Gospel of Mark. We don't know if Paul ever saw or talked to Barnabas for the rest of his life. What a tragedy that is because this was a man that stuck his neck out more than once for the Apostle Paul. Tradition, though we don't know for sure, church tradition is that Paul or Barnabas rather never left Cyprus. 
He stayed on his home island where he eventually passed away. But what we do know, and here's the beautiful part, what we do know is that Paul would kiss and make up with young John Mark. We know that for sure because among the last words in the last letter that the Apostle Paul would ever write, his final letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, here's what he says in verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. Isn't that great? Isn't that the storybook ending that you love to see and these kind of bitter rows that often take place in life where there is an embrace and where there's reconciliation? God had given to the Apostle Paul the ministry of reconciliation. And now we see the Apostle Paul who himself had matured and continued to grow. This was now the Apostle Paul that wrote the letter to Philemon. Somebody say amen. Where everything in that short, brief letter has everything to do with being reconciled in a situation of hostility. In fact, Paul will mention Mark at the end of the letter to the Colossians. Mark is with me. He sends his greetings. He'll mention Mark at the end of the letter to Philemon. Mark is with me in Rome, in prison, ministering to and with Paul. He sends his greetings. I'm telling you, God, aren't you thankful? God can take even the worst situations in life. And for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he can make flowers spring forth from the ashes. Amen. Now let me say that while that's true, and I'm very thankful to be able to share openly that God can take bad stuff and turn good stuff in. But are y'all still listening say amen? I don't want anybody to leave here today and think that's an excuse to act like a nut. It's not an excuse to go out and pick a fight. It's not an excuse to act more like the devil than you do like Jesus Christ. It's not an excuse to maintain a grudge. That's playing on grace. That's presuming upon the grace of God. That's sin. You don't lean against the sovereignty of God to justify a life of disobedience. We're to love our enemies. Jesus said, bless those who persecute you. We're to strive for peace as far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all men. Do all things without grumbling or murmuring. That's what the Bible says. That's obedient living. But we do thank God that even though peace isn't always possible this side of heaven, God's grace is greater than all our sin. Now, as we wrap up this morning, let's get practical for just a minute because I've got to conclude. And let me suggest five important steps, just from a practical dimension, five important steps that you can employ whenever you find yourself in some kind of relational conflict. First of all, own your part in the conflict. You say, well, I didn't do anything. Are you sure about that? Man, I've been counseling with people for a long time, long time, long time. 
I'm just pretty much convinced there's almost never a completely innocent party in a spat. Where it's a husband, a wife, parent, child, friend, a friend, co-workers, whatever the case might be. And so I just think that it's always, when you find yourself at odds with someone else, the first thing you do before you start examining everything that's wrong with them is to look within first. What did I do? What, maybe, maybe I used a wrong tone. Maybe I approached something in an unbiblical manner. Maybe I didn't look like Christ. Always begin with a self-examination to determine if you maybe have added to the conflict in some way. And then as you make peace, be quick to admit that because that goes a long way to calming things down. Own your part in the conflict. Two, seek to solve the problem directly. Directly. Circle the word directly. In other words, you've got to engage, man. You've got, you got to admit there's a problem. And let me just say, hoping that the conflict will go away is not a solution. You know why? Because the conflict isn't going away. It's not going to go away. If you just ignore it, it probably is just going to get worse. So don't, what, what you don't want to do, and here's what we're prone to do. We're prone to admit there's a problem, but then to talk about the problem to everybody but the other person involved in the problem. You get on that telephone, or maybe you're passive aggressive and you go out there and put, without naming names, we're just gonna post it on Facebook. <laughs> or send a passive aggressive tweet. Social media will precede the coming of Jesus Christ because it's gonna destroy the world in my humble opinion. Craziest things I've ever seen are on, the, on, on social media, and that's what we do. We talk to it. To, we'll just let the whole world know what's going on. We'll talk to everybody but the other person. No, pipe down. And don't talk about it at all unless you're talking about it with the other person because that's what Jesus said to do. Jesus said, if you're at odds with someone, go to that person privately. Matthew 18, have a conversation with them because that's where the healing begins. And having said that, three, be sensitive to when and to how you engage. Because there's a, can I say, there's a right time and there's a wrong time to talk. Amen. I hear those amens. You don't want to, listen, you don't want to talk to your spouse after they're just coming off an 80-hour work week on Friday night. That's just not a good time to talk. There needs to be rest and refreshment. And you don't, you don't dump stuff when the timing is not right. And you don't engage defensively poking a finger in the chest. Well, if you didn't do this and if you were more like that, no, you might as well just throw a Molotov cocktail right in the middle of the ring, man. The three T's of engagement, as I've called them for years, are very important. They're not in your notes, but you ought to write them down. Timing, tact, and tone. Critical in conflict resolution. The right timing with the proper tact in the right tone. And this is why, are y'all still with me? Say amen. This is why face-to-face -face conversations are better than emails or texts because you, it's very difficult to read tone into electronic communication, and most of the time you'll misread the tone. 
I've made jokes before to people who read it and thought I was mad. And I was joking. It was a joke. But it, it didn't communicate the right kind of tone. So this is very important. Pay attention to the when and how. And then fourth, always take the high road. Don't get down in the mud. Even when it's more costly, you need to take the high road. Because you never lose. May I say it? You never lose when you make a decision to look and react like Jesus Christ. You'll never lose. God will always honor that. The Bible says, the one who honors me, I will honor, says the Lord. So always take the high road. And let me just say this. You want to make sure that you're making decisions in the midst of conflict. You want to make sure that you're making decisions out of obedience rather than by feelings. I just want to shout when I say that. Because your feelings are going to get you in big trouble. Because if you let your feelings be your primary guide, you all but guarantee that you operate out of the flesh rather than out of the spirit, and you are almost guaranteeing you're going to look more like the devil than you do like Christ. No, you base your decisions on this book right here, right here. You base your decisions and your reactions and your approach on what God has already said is clearly right and clearly wrong. And so always take the high road, and that always means responding and living obediently. And then finally, pray for the other person. Pray for the other person. That's among the hardest things Jesus ever taught for some people to pray for your enemies and to actively bless those who persecute you. But boy, Jesus was very intentional. You know why he tells us to do that? Because you can't hate somebody you're praying for God to bless. See, the thing about praying is it slows you down. Amen. Man, you get on your knees. Prayer slows you down. It connects you in communion with Christ. It puts yourself in a position where you can hear a word from the Lord and be reminded that God is sovereign and that God is on his throne and that God does indeed work all things together for good. And then as you pray, you ask for God to bless that other person. You don't know what that other person, I don't care what they did, and really it doesn't matter what they did. Again, are you going to act and react based on feelings or based on obedience? That's really the bottom line. That's why you pray for them. You ask God to bless them because you can't hate somebody and pray for them at the same time. It helps you to react with the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. May I say it again this morning? Conflict is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be fatal, and it doesn't have to be final. Good things can come from tense situations if we take ownership and commit to live obediently so that we always look, act, and react like Jesus Christ. This is God's word. It's a good one. And all God's people said, amen.